post-exile. And we've been looking at, for the last few weeks, at the book of Ezra, as the people of Israel returned from 70 years in Babylon, in exile, to their homeland in Jerusalem. And we've seen them rebuild the temple and their worship. We've seen them rebuild their identity as God's people, as influencers for God. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are one continuous story. And we're gonna pick up the story today in the first half of Nehemiah, which occurs about 13 years after the end of Ezra. And if you know anything about Nehemiah, you probably know, maybe from Sunday school, that it's about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. When you think of walled cities, what do you think about? I think about the Lord of the Rings and Helm's Deep and Minas Tirith and defending Gondor against orcs and trolls and giant elephants and the evil armies of Sauron. And I've been watching the Rings of Power, so this is fresh in my mind. I had to watch the Lord of the Rings again in the last few weeks. But we might automatically think of a wall around the city as defense, as protecting the physical safety of a city. But it's not just that here in Nehemiah. God's mission of rebuilding is not about the physical safety of Jerusalem. And it's really not about our safety either. God is doing something bigger with them and with us. Nehemiah begins with the news that the wall was broken down. And this was sad news. And he prayed. And we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1. And as we read his prayer, notice what he prays about. He doesn't really pray for the wall or for, or for protection or safety for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The wall was broken down and the gates burned. And when Nehemiah heard this, he wept, he mourned, he fasted and prayed. 
and he prayed about asking his boss, the king, for help. But you probably notice his prayer doesn't say anything about the wall, really. It's not about safety and protection. He's not upset about the possibility of attack. He prays about sin and disobedience and about disgrace and the shame of Jerusalem. Because a city with broken walls revealed a broken, defeated people. Nehemiah's prayed about rebuilding the wall because it was important to show God's blessing on Israel to the people who live there and to the people in the surrounding areas. Jerusalem was not just any city. It was the dwelling place of God. It represented Israel's special status as God's people, both to the Jews themselves and to their enemies. And Nehemiah didn't pray that Jerusalem would be safe. He prayed that it would be a place where the name of God would dwell and be revered. And again, as we've seen in the last few weeks in the book of Ezra, God is rebuilding a people, not just a place. He's restoring this broken people to relationship with him. God's mission is to rebuild and restore the world through them, his people. And that's why Nehemiah mourned and wept. It wasn't for the wall itself. It was for God's glory, for God's people. He wept for the holiness and devotion of the people and their neglect in obeying God and honoring God. When he heard about their condition, his heart broke and a sense of mission was awakened in him. His passion was aroused and he could not rest until something was done. What does the word passion evoke in you? It's kind of a scary word, especially for those of us who like to maintain control and avoid emotional extremes, right? But we are to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And that's what passion is. God calls us to be passionate for him, to love him with a passion like Nehemiah. And passion can be scary. It can be a scary idea, but it's also an exciting one. It's full of conviction and impact, and it awakens our desire for longing, our longing for, for impact and conviction and connection and meaning. It awakens this desire to live a life worth living. Back in March 2020, when we shut down for the pandemic, it interrupted my careful plans to visit my daughter and my new grandchild every few months. And I already had a trip planned for April 2020, the next month, which I canceled and postponed to May because we all thought it was gonna end soon. And then I canceled that and postponed it to June and then to July. And at that point, both of my kids encouraged me to go, to just go, and I did. And when I got on the plane, it was pretty empty. The airport was pretty empty. There was no one in my row, no one in the row behind me or the row in front of me. I disinfected everything. I sanitized everything. I had all my disinfectant and my hand sanitizers. And I ate with my mask on, slipping the food under my mask. I hardly drank anything because I didn't want to get up and use the bathroom. And it was stressful. But I did it, again, every few months throughout the pandemic because, you know, Grandkids will awaken that kind of passion. 
But every time before I got on a plane, I prayed long and hard for God's protection and grace and mercy. And my prayer isn't something like this. God, protect me. Help me not to get COVID. Help me not to get sick. But if I do, I will trust you. And if I do get sick, help it to be mild. Help me not to get really sick. I don't like being really sick. But if I get really sick, I will trust you. And if I get really sick, help me not to die. <laughs> but if I do, I'll trust you fully because I'll be in heaven with you. So just take care of my family if that happens. And trusting God doesn't mean I think God will always do what I want him to do, that things will always go my way. It means I believe he will care for me, that he will provide for me no matter what. And to be honest, all that time, I wasn't really sure if flying was God's will or just my stupid self-will. But now, looking back, I think God led me to risk flying because it made it so much easier to risk coming back to church when it was time to come back to church. And especially being in that older, higher risk category, it was risky. A lot of us felt it was risky, and we came back slowly. But I felt compelled to be here as a pastor. You know, it's part of my job, really, to be here. But I might have felt afraid and worried. I might have stayed home during the COVID and Omicron surges. But I came, and I prayed those same prayers. God, protect me. Help me not to get COVID. Help these people to stay away from me. But if I do get sick, I will trust you. And I think now that God led me to risk flying so that I would not be afraid of the risk of coming to church. Because like many of you, I believe that God wanted me here. Like many of you, I believe that worship, that community, that the mission of the church is worth the risk. And I believe for all of us, all things considered, that it's better to be here at church than to be watching the live stream if you are able to. It's better for you and your passion for God, and it's better for us, the church. I have a passion for these two things, family and serving Jesus. It's what makes my life joyful, fun, exciting, and stressful and a little scary, but worth living. And God has placed in each of us a passion for him that makes life worth living, that's worth living for, fighting for, dying for. And we are most alive when we lean into that passion, when we recognize who God is, how much he loves us, that we love him with a passion and lean into it. What are you passionate about? What do you love? What do you think about all the time? What are you willing to take risks for and to sacrifice for? Jesus wants to be your passion, the one you love, the one you're willing to sacrifice for. And the book of Nehemiah is about passion for God and the perseverance against opposition. It's about God's continuing mission to rebuild and restore this broken world, and it's about the people God uses, the people flawed and broken as they are, the people who show up. And today God works through us, his people, his church, as we serve him and lean into that love and passion for him and persevere 
against whatever our opposition is. Nehemiah was a cupbearer in the king's court. He was the servant in charge of drinks. And he had a comfortable position, respected position, stable, secure life in the splendor of the palace. But he had a passion for God's glory that would not let him go back to business as usual. And so for four months he prayed and fasted, and then he humbly went before the king to ask for his help and blessing. And then he went to Jerusalem to rebuild and restore the wall. And in chapters two and three, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, he inspects the wall, and then he gathers the people and challenges them and inspires them to get to work to rebuild the wall. If you have a Bible, you can look at chapter three and just skim through it. I'm not gonna read it all. It's just all the people who worked on the wall, on the 10 gates and each section between them. And you can see just this whole chapter of people. And as we saw in Ezra, people showed up at great cost. It included priests, merchants, goldsmiths, perfume makers, men and women. People who were willing to sacrifice, who, to do the labor of building a wall. Some worked on the portions of the wall near their residence or business. Some of them came from the surrounding areas and they left their families, their flocks and their fields. The work depended on people willing to sacrifice, to serve, to persevere when it got tough. And it did get tough. Later in chapter five, skipping ahead a little bit, the workers who had left their businesses and fields and families had also left their sources of income, wages, and they needed money to pay taxes and to feed their families. The poor were forced to mortgage their fields, to borrow money at inflated interest rates, and sometimes using their children as collateral. And Nehemiah angrily confronted the wealthy noblemen. He had confronted them because they were taking advantage of the workers, their own countrymen, while they also benefited from the wall. And he called them to compassion and justice, to give back what they had taken, and to stop overcharging. And they did. They listened to Nehemiah. They repented of their sin. And the work on the wall continued. And then there was also ongoing opposition from the surrounding areas, the officials and governors of the neighboring lands, just as we saw in Ezra. They didn't want the Jews to rebuild and become strong again. And they mocked and ridiculed and intimidated and threatened physical harm. They made false accusations to stall the work and attempted to lure Nehemiah to a quiet place and kill him. How did Nehemiah face the opposition? In every chapter, we see his faith and his prayers. We see his wisdom and integrity. We see his passion and confidence. And we see the heart and perseverance of the people. Let's read chapter four, where we see a lot of this opposition. Chapter four. When Sambalot, who was one of those governors in the neighboring areas, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the, Jew, the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. And Nehemiah prayed, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. 
Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. In verse 20, he says, our God will fight for us. The opposition threatened the progress on the wall. On top of the exhausting physical work, of building a wall. They faced fear and anxiety. They faced feeling distracted and discouraged. They could have begun to doubt the mission and stopped working. And we rem you might remember back in Ezra, that's what happened in building the temple, that they abandoned the work for 15 years because of the opposition. And this happens with us too, when we face opposition. When we're building something for God, trying to grow spiritually, to serve, to give, to come to church, to start a ministry, to reach out to others. When we're building something for God, we face opposition too. We also can face fear and discouragement, anxiety and feeling distracted. We wonder if we're doing the right thing. And we do get distracted when we're trying to serve and follow Jesus. How do we persevere in the face of opposition? In verse 14, Nehemiah says this, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. And these are just two strategies here. The first one is remember the Lord. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and remember who he is. Remember what he's like, that he's all powerful and all loving sovereign and in control of everything, faithful and good. Remember that he created you for a purpose, to serve him and love him, and that he provides everything you need. Remember what he's done for you in the past, how he's always provided all that you needed. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, because the obstacles look big. When we're trying to grow spiritually, when we're trying to trust God more, we think about the danger and the risk and the what ifs. We look at ourselves and think about our own weaknesses and limitations and how little we have to offer and we feel afraid. 
And sometimes we are tempted to stay in that fear, to get stuck, to do nothing, to value comfort and safety, and just not work, not respond, not love God. But Nehemiah rallies his people with the cry to remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. The obstacles look big, but God is bigger. And when you're struggling, feeling tempted, when you're thinking about that next step of faith, don't look so much at yourself and what you can't do. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. And the second thing we do is fight the opposition. When things get hard, we fight the enemy. We take action against the enemy. And we have to think about what our enemy is. It's not always people, though sometimes it is. But think about that. What's the enemy for you? What's the thing that gets in the way as you try to grow and serve God more? Maybe you know right away what that is. Or maybe you have to think about it, reflect on that a little bit. But what pulls you away from greater love for God, greater service and faith? Is it comfort or status or what people think or what they might say? Or is it apathy or pride or fear or the wrong priorities or a too busy schedule? Identify your enemy and fight it. And that sounds hard. Fighting the opposition requires effort and energy. It can be hard work. And giving up seems to be a tempting strategy these days. We've all heard of the great resignation and quiet quitting. And quiet quitting can mean, can be a good thing. And it can mean setting clear boundaries and saying no and preventing burnout. But it can also mean coasting and slacking off and doing the minimum possible. And church leaders point out that it's not just at work, on the job. That quiet quitting can happen in church attendance, in discipleship, and in our attitude towards spiritual growth. Pastor and theologian Russell Moore says this, perhaps quiet quitting is happening in some workplaces, though I suspect it's no more than always. Yet even if mythical, the idea of quiet quitting points to something real in many people's lives. It's a sense that what they will do will make no difference, that things will never change. I've found this mentality to be a genuine temptation in the context of the church. And I want to think none of you feels that way, but I have to be realistic and wonder. Do you think that what you do spiritually doesn't matter, that it won't make a difference? Could you be quiet quitting Jesus and the church in your spiritual life? And if you're at home watching the live stream, are you at home because you think it doesn't matter if you come to church? And if you're here in the room, are you checking out, slacking off, doing the minimum as a follower of Jesus? It's convicting to stop and examine where our passion is where our love for Jesus really is. But it's so easy to coast when we're not paying attention. Following Jesus does require attention and energy and effort. 
And God has placed in each of us a passion for him that makes life worth living. And it's a passion that's worth fighting for. We're most alive when we fight for that passion and love for Jesus. Don't quiet quit the church or Jesus or your spiritual life. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight whatever gets in the way for you. God called Nehemiah to rebuild the wall and they finished the work in 52 days. But it wasn't just about the wall. God's bigger calling was to be a part of his unfolding plan to redeem and restore this broken world through them. And we are a part of that unfolding plan. We are rebuilding the church, but it's not just about the church either. As we return to a sense of normalcy post-pandemic, as more people come to church, as we restore ministries, there's work to do, but it's not just about the church. But God's bigger calling is still for us to be a part of his unfolding plan to restore this broken world to him. We are a part of God's mission. God uses people, us. And we are a part of his mission when we serve and follow him, when we love God and love others, when we build community and reach out to the world around us. Ephesians 4, 12 to 16 gives us a picture of the church. And in the New Living Translation, it says this. The pastor teacher's responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts to grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. And we are in this continual process of building and rebuilding. The work continues as we grow to be healthy and growing and full of love. And maturity doesn't mean we retire and sit back and let the young people do the work. And doing his work isn't just for those who are not busy and have extra time. We grow as each part does its work. What you do matters. You make a difference. Today is a milestone day in our rebuilding process as we restore the refreshments ministry. And we're able to do this because Tammy Wong has a passion for serving God, also for baking and cooking, but mostly for serving God. And I know right now you're all picturing food, maybe remembering something like this. But what I hope you picture even more is this. Tammy is willing to do the hard work of coordinating this ministry because she knows food brings people together. And I hope you'll have a passion not for eating, but for community. And that you'll see food as a means to talking to people, new people, reaching out to people, getting to know that person in front of you in line, inviting them to talk with you, asking questions. I hope you signed up to help, not because you're a great cook and you want to impress us, but because you want to help create a space where people can interact and bless one another. Refreshments for us has to be more than eating and food. It's an opportunity to fellowship and build community. 
Let's have a passion for the right things. Let's fight for what really matters. How do you rekindle passion and persevere when it's hard? Be in community with others who want what you want, who influence you, who show you how to do it at church, in small groups, in your get-togethers with people. Be influenced by people who love and serve Jesus. God uses you to build people up, and he uses them to build you up. Ask them for support and help if you need it. And pray. Ask God for help. Tell God what you need, and listen for the Spirit to speak, to guide, to bless you. Prayer is how we make space for the Spirit to work in us. And I hope you noticed Nehemiah's prayers. He prayed often, before he did anything, and while things were happening. He prayed long, eloquent prayers, and quick on the spot ones. These prayer turns our attention from us to God. One way to grow in prayer is to be with people who pray, to listen to their prayers, to be inspired by them, to be influenced by people who pray and pray well. And I want to invite you to prayer to pray with us on Zoom on Saturday mornings at 8:15 for half an hour. About a dozen people right now are joining to pray, and we pray for the church, for the worship service, for you. And I really have my doubts that any of you are going to volunteer and just sign up to pray because I know you all feel intimidated by praying. You don't like praying out loud and you wonder how you sound. You worry about what people think. And I know that because I feel the same way. And that's why I always say it's okay to join and pray silently with your video and your audio off. And some people do that. It's really okay. I don't like praying out loud either, but my prayer grows as I spend time in the company of people who pray. So if you'd like to join, there's a link in the CBC email that was sent out yesterday. If you're not on our email list and you'd like to be, let us know. Um, but do sign up for the, my email updates because we are going to take some breaks in October. And I don't want you to join the Zoom and have nobody be there. So let me know if you're interested. But as we close, I want to give you a moment just to pray, to spend a moment with God and tell him what you need, what you're thinking, what's hard, how you need help. And as the worship team comes up, I'm going to give you time to just spend a moment with God. Think about some things like this. How do you want to grow in passion and love for Jesus? Where do you need help to persevere against your opposition? And what do you need to receive from God today, right now? So as we close, I'll pray, and then I'll just be quiet for a minute so you can pray and tell God what you need. So let's pray. <laughs>